what were the terms that got that big deal done? These guys know. Sports Business Radio. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one sad news from the world of baseball this week. George Steinbrenner, the longtime owner of the New York Yankees, dies of a massive heart attack at the age of 80. We're going to discuss his legacy in our next segment with Maury Brown from the bizofbaseball.com. But Griggs, you know, this is a guy who really is going to be remembered. You know, the Miller Lite commercials in the 70s and 80s. He was on Seinfeld. He wasn't just an owner. He was like this pop culture icon and really changed the way that owners do business in the world of sports business. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, he's one of those guys that's everywhere, you know, other than the ballpark. You know, you see him on everything and you have and he's been there so many years. It's like everybody knows who he is, knows his voice, knows his face, knows his sayings. You know, he's a loss for more than just a baseball fan, I think. During his tenure as the owner of the Yankees since 1973, other Major League Baseball clubs have had 100 ownership changes. So he was really the stability for the Yankees and wanted to win. You heard some of the clips that we played a moment ago. This guy wanted to win as badly as Michael Jordan or any other competitor that the sports world has ever seen. Our next headline, World Cup TV ratings. Last Sunday, Spain-Netherlands final earned an 8.1 rating, 15.5 million viewers in the United States. Overall, the World Cup earned a 2.1 U.S. rating, about 3.2 million viewers for 64 matches across ABC, ESPN, ESPN2. Griggs, I got to tell you, I sat down and watched Spain-Netherlands start to finish. Not a very pretty game. And I think, again, if you're someone in the United States watching soccer and you watch that game on TV and you don't sit down and watch soccer during the year, it's probably not going to draw you in to watch soccer on a regular basis. And, you know, I missed it. I was out camping, but I got home and watched the stoppage time. And, yeah, it's just kind of it, for, a, for a championship game like that, it just, I don't know, it just didn't have that, that oomph feel to it for me. Speaking of TV ratings, Major League Baseball, the All-Star game, they got the worst ratings ever for the all-star game this week we will talk about those ratings more with maury brown from the biz maybe talk about some things they could do to get those ratings up i'm sure playing on the west coast where the game started at 5 p.m certainly didn't help and it was a low scoring game our next headline the british open one of my favorite majors of the year in the golf world taking place at one of my favorite courses i still hope to visit there one day iconic St. Andrews. You know, Tiger is the favorite, even though he hasn't won a tournament this year. He's a 6-1 favorite going in to the tournament. But Griggs, one of the things that made news with Tiger this week, on the course for the first time in a long time, Tiger Woods changed his putter for the first time in 12 years. He'd always played with a Scotty Cameron putter. He now has switched to the Nike putter, meaning for the first time in his career, all 14 clubs in his bag or Nike. He was draining some good putts early in his round, so maybe this putter is uh, going to help him. Well, he's 100% Nike now, I guess. And Nike's love again, I'm sure, seeing the putter out there. And, uh, you know, these, these professional golfers, they say the, the putter can change the whole game. So, who knows? You know, maybe this will be the change. Well, and it's interesting. I've done some work for Nike Golf, and, you know, one of the things I'll say is this. Tiger Woods and any of these guys, this is how they make their living. So they're not going to just play clubs because they're being paid to endorse them. If it's not going to help them win, they're not going to play the club. 
obviously Tiger this year has had putting woes, and he probably figures, hey, you know what? I might as well try out this Nike putter. Probably can't get a lot worse, but it is a coup for Nike because they can really push this putter now and say Tiger Woods is playing our putter. And if they, if he happens to win the British Open playing this putter, that would be even bigger for Nike putter sales. Our final headline of the week, a shock. The Golden State Warriors, they've been on the market for a while. Chris Cohan is their owner. He's an odd guy at best. He's wanted to sell the Warriors for a record purchase price. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Suns, paid a record purchase price, $401 million to purchase the Suns. Cohan wanted $450 million. So it was this game of chicken between he and Oracle billionaire Larry Ellison, who has long wanted to get into the NBA. This stare down went Chris Cohan's way when a group led by Joseph LaCobb, who's a minority owner for the Boston Celtics, and Peter Goober of Mandalay Entertainment, they stepped up to the plate. They outbid Larry Ellison who, again, is worth $28 billion by $50 million. So they paid that $450 million asking price. And now Larry Ellison, who has for a long time wanted to be an owner in the NBA, looks like he's not going to be an NBA owner, at least for the foreseeable future. And Golden State Warriors fans who had hoped that one of the wealthiest men in the world would step up by their team, turn around the fortunes of that franchise, it's not going to happen. Coming up next... Maury Brown, thebizofbaseball.com. We're going to discuss the legacy of the boss, George Steinbrenner. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Well, I'm dusting off my golf clubs and looking forward to enjoying the gorgeous Oregon summer weather on the golf course. Like many of you, I'm on a budget. I want to tee it up when it's convenient for my schedule, and I enjoy playing golf courses that deliver a private golf club experience. That's why I want to tell you about the Ghost Pass at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club. The Ghost Pass is Oregon's premier frequent player program that allows you to play the world-renowned Ghost Creek Golf Course for over half off of the regular greens fees. And with your Ghost Pass, you can make your tee times 14 days in advance. The Ghost Pass program sets itself apart by offering a competitive tournament program, which includes one exclusive Ghost Pass event at Witch Hollow. The Ghost Pass is available for only $150, and here's the best part. When you sign up for the Ghost Pass, you'll receive a complimentary round of golf valued at $150. So you literally can't lose when you purchase the Ghost Pass. Go online to pumpkinridge.com and sign up for the Ghost Pass today. I'll see you on the links. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Maury Brown. He's with thebizofbaseball.com. You can find him on Twitter at bizballmaury. He's been with us many times before. He just returned from the All-Star Game down in Southern California. Maury, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian. So we'll get to the All-Star Game in a minute, but I want to start by talking about the death of George Steinbrenner. There's so many things you can talk about as to how he impacted the world of sports business. One of the most astounding figures to me this week was that he bought the Yankees in 1973 from CBS for $8.7 million. Today, the Yankees and their properties are valued at $1.6 billion. He's won seven World Series since he owned the team. Some staggering numbers with him. Oh, it's, it's, it is. It's it's phenomenal. Uh, it is one of those things to where – 
you know, maybe his biggest mark will be how he raised the bar um, in terms of salaries for players. I mean, there's, there's, with the exception, I think in 1997, it was the last time that the Yankees didn't hold the top ranking in total player payroll. Um, he was not just a, a man who made money. He was a man who lavished money on players to win. And, you know, I think that, you know, this is a double-edged sword, right? I mean, it is one of those things to where a lot of the smaller markets say, hey, look, you know, you've really overturned the apple cart here for us. You make it impossible for us to compete. But in the overall, it really raised the bar for all the players. And so um, the fact that he would reinvest to win, you know, you have to give him a lot of kudos in that regard that, you know, he could have taken something that had this incredible storied history, all the all the World Series championships, the fact that they're in a large market, Yankee Stadium, everything about them. And he could have probably kept a lot of that money in his pocket and instead he lavished on, you know, massive salaries um, for the players. So, um, you know, and, and that $1.6 billion that you mentioned, Brian, that doesn't even include Yes Network, which he launched um, a few years back. And that was a huge uh, change in the landscape for the business as uh, of baseball as well. You know, having a regional sports network that was owned by a club um, outside of the revenue sharing model. So um, there's, you know, uh, so many things that you could say about George Steinbrenner. In terms of the business, though, he has a huge shadow over it. You know, you mentioned I was at the All-Star game. Um, that's all anybody would talk about, was talking about there during uh, the uh, All-Star game festivities on um, on Tuesday. So, um, his legacy will be huge, and, and uh, I'm sure he's going to be missed, certainly by the Yankees organization, and, and be talked about for some time. He wanted to win so badly. Since the year 2000, just over the past decade, he spent $1.87 billion just on player payroll. This is a guy, when you're talking about fierce competitors, whether it's Michael Jordan or Larry Bird or Peyton Manning or whoever it may be, you've got to put George Steinbrenner in that category. Even though he wasn't on the field, he was as fierce a competitor as the sports world's ever known. Oh, he was. I mean, we were at the press conference and Joe Girardi was talking about, um, you know, in 2000 when they won the World Series, um, the next day he was starting to figure out um, what, what what they were going to do to try and win next year. I mean, this is the day after they won. He was already starting to look into how he was going to um, win next year's championship. And I think that it probably went like that every year that he owned the club. Um, you know, he had a bad stretch there in the 80s. I mean, they were they were certainly not competitive. But, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to think of anything over the last 20 uh, – a, a club over the last 20 years – that, you know, has been as dominant um, in baseball as the Yankees. Yeah, and the thing about Steinbrenner, too, you know, I'm I'm 41 years old. I remember him in the Miller Lite commercials with Billy Martin and with some of the other characters they had in the 70s and 80s. He hosted Saturday Night Live. He was on Seinfeld. He was almost like this pop culture figure, too, and you've never really seen an owner take on that kind of a, an aura with the public. Maybe Mark Cuban is the closest anyone's come, but uh, I don't think he comes anywhere close to what Steinbrenner became. No, and that's true. I mean, he is a pop culture icon, and I think he will continue to be that way. You know, it, it's one of those things to where, um, you know, you mentioned Seinfeld and whatnot, and, and it, it wasn't just a one-shot thing. I mean, it was a lasting, you know, thing to have his character there on Seinfeld, and it was, you know, making fun of him, and he seemed to roll with that pretty well. But, you know, he also was a guy, you know, he was, he's a, a complex man in the sense that, um, you know, he could be one 
one way or another, depending on a given day. Um, somebody mentioned that, uh, I think it was Tom Verducci mentioned that it, his nickname for a while there was the jukebox because you, you never know who, what, what you were going to get. You would put a quarter in the machine and one day you might get somebody that was very, you know, approachable and, and be on your side. And then the next day you might have bluster. I mean, he was known to play the media off of each other and that was, you know, a huge win for him. He was very savvy in that sense. Very complex man. That's, that's for certain. Well, yeah, I mean, he was a guy... 22 managers in 38 seasons. He hired and fired Billy Martin five times. So, you know, when you look at a guy who was volatile, that was George Steinbrenner. Yeah, he was. And, you know, I, the interesting thing was I think, you know, his his failing health really mellowed things out. And, and his sons, Hank and Hal, had basically been running the show, you know, for a number of years now. Um and he was more or less behind the scenes. But as he mellowed out, I mean, certainly Girardi was under a lot of pressure. You know, he's been there five years, and he was already on the hot seat. But things seem to have mellowed out, you know, in the sense that um, they continued to make these incredible investments, whether it was, you know, CC Sabathia or A.G. Burnett, Mark Teixeira. That deal alone, those three players, you know, in total, with there were multi-year contracts worth over $325 million dollars. So when they didn't make the playoffs, they they were willing to spend. So I, I don't see that trend stopping. Even though Steinbrenner was kind of behind the scenes, the, his legacy will continue through, um, I think, with his kids. Yeah, I mean, talk about that for a moment. I want to give out one statistic that is interesting. So because George Steinbrenner died in a year when there's no federal estate tax, he's potentially saving his heirs a 55% levy on his assets, amounting to a tax bill of about $600 million. So even in death, he's saving his family some money. But maybe you can talk about the future of the Yankees under his sons. Is it going to be the same, or is it going to be very different? Well, I think that it'll be a little bit different. It's an interesting um, dichotomy between Hank and Hal. Hal seems to be a little more evenly measured, and he's basically running the business side of things, while Hank is more or less involved uh, more on the on the player side. And Hank strikes me more of being like more like George, I think, than Hal does. They, for one thing, they look very similar, and their bluster, I think, is kind of the same. But even then, I don't think it matches up to what George was like. Um, it, Hank seems to be far more. Um, introspective and maybe more analytical on some sides than, than George was. George was so incredibly volatile, as you mentioned, that you just never knew what way things were going to go on a given day where things seem to be a little more measured um, with with Hank. And so I think that it will continue to move forward. I, I can certainly see them rallying um, the players and the organization around winning the World Series this year for George. I mean, I think that that's probably given you're going to hear that a lot. You know, let's win this one for George. Um, and I think that they will continue to grow it, um, grow the business side much as George did. But it'll be hard for them to fill their father's shoes. I, I don't think that you can, you know, you mentioned the price that, that he purchased the club and made the changes. I, I'd i be hard-pressed to see them being able to make that kind of impact on the Yankees on their own. I think that they can only extend the legacy. I don't know if they can make their own legacies at this point. Well, last thing on George Steinbrenner, maybe one of the most underrated things about him was, A, that he, the Yankees were a family to him. I look at his relationship with someone like Daryl Strawberry, who's had his off-the-field problems, and he was really a father figure to Strawberry, and 
the contributions that Steinbrenner made quietly, not only in the New York community, but in the Tampa community, those are the things that I think don't get enough uh, publicity. Yeah, it was interesting. It was the the the, the main stick, the main thing that uh, Derek Jeter said at the press conference at the All Star game on the day of his death was um, that family was a large part of it. That he felt like um, he knew all the players, and he the first the first thing that Jeter remembered was when he was you know out at the Gulf Coast and was a rookie and basically just coming up. You know, he called him out by name and knew his name, and he was nobody, right? I mean, everybody thinks Derek Jeter, you know, has always been somebody, but of course he wasn't. And and he said that that um, was the thing that really struck him. He knew everybody's players, and that continued on. You know, he said that that the star player he would remember his name or some guy that played 25 years ago for maybe three weeks, you know, or maybe, you know, less as a cup of coffee in the, in the Yankees organization, he would remember all their names. And he said that was the thing that really stuck with him is that his sense of family was really there. Amazing. We're joined by Maury Brown with the biz of baseball.com. Maury, we've just got a few minutes left. You were in Southern California for the all-star game. Looks like it was terrific in person terrible ratings on TV, the home run derby, not very good ratings. What does Major League Baseball need to do to get people watching on TV to watch in, in bigger numbers? Well, I think part of the problem with this was, you know, it was a West Coast, you know, game, and it had a 5 o'clock start, and that really, I think, influenced the ratings to a certain extent. Now, you know, granted, you know, L.A. is certainly not going to be a hotbed. I mean, if you look at the ratings, St. Louis had the highest ratings, and St. Louis has always been kind of the bellwether for baseball in general. You know, it's a great fan market. Um, I don't know what they, they can possibly do um, to make the ratings better. I mean, you had ostensibly many of the same players um, that you had prior. Um, it was a low-scoring affair. Um, it was really a pitcher's kind of game in that sense. And so I think that maybe maybe added to some of the, you know, lack of interest maybe later in the game. But, you know, overall, on the ground, it was fantastic. I mean, it was really a success in every measure. Everywhere you went, it was packed out. The Fan Fest was very successful. The parade that they had went really well. Um, it was sold out, you know, to, to the nth degree. You know, tickets were very hard to come by. So I don't know what baseball can possibly do. I know that I talked to a representative from the league um, on Wednesday after everything went, and, and they said that they were really happy with how things had gone. So I don't know. I mean, other than, than placing it in another market, I mean, we're going to have it once again in a, in, a, in a West Coast venue in Arizona next year. So it'll be interesting to see. Maybe the makeup of the players will change things. Well, and that's going to be something to keep our eyes on because of the political situation in Arizona. There are a lot of players and other sponsors saying that that game should be boycotted. So that will be something we'll follow in the future. Maury Brown, bizofbaseball.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Sports Business Radio this week. Hey, Brian, it's always a pleasure being with you. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. On the plane, on my brain, about to do the show. 40K contract, take it out the dope. Dice symbolize my life, roll them on the floor. From your grubby hands as you ham and grandstand. You live a shishi like we live the bon bon feet. Hide it in the book while we watch the TV. Think you got us fooled. Who? Never again. First time, shame on me. Second time, your time will end.
Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or what's, or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Rick Buecher. He's ESPN's NBA insider. You can follow him on Twitter at Rick Buecher. Good friend of the shows. Rick, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. My pleasure. Certainly a lot of sports business uh, to be discussed these days when it comes to the NBA. Yeah, let's start with the collective bargaining agreement discussions. Uh, David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, held a press conference in Las Vegas this week. Then Billy Hunter, the Players Association leader, responded. Sounds like they're far apart. I mean, essentially, Stern's saying that the owners are going to lose $370 million. Billy Hunter says he's about $370 million off. Talks about <laughs> record-setting revenues and great TV ratings for the finals. Yep. Where do you think this is going? Uh, to a lockout. It's, it seems to be both sides are preparing not if, but when we're going to have a, lock, a lockout. And just the question is going to be how long. And certainly uh, the big question is how, how prepared are the players? How, how far in advance have they fiscally prepared themselves to start missing paychecks? None of this really, even though the, the, uh, the, the current collective bargaining agreement expires July 1, um, most guys get paid during the season. They don't, there's, there's, they're, they're, it's not, you know, every two weeks around the, uh, around the calendar year, it's every two weeks during the NBA season. So they don't really feel the, the pinch until we get to October and training camp begins. And that's usually when the normal checks kick in. And that's when the cash flow for players changes. So, um, you know, from everything that I'm hearing on both sides, both sides are preparing uh, in various ways, basically not planning, not planning beyond July 1 to have exhibition games or traveling uh, overseas. None of that stuff is being planned because the anticipation is that we will not be having games. So that's a question I get all the time. If there is a work stoppage, the players yep. are not getting paid. And what you're saying is they don't really start getting paid until October. That's when they're going to start feeling the pinch and saying, okay, I'm missing paychecks. Exactly. Exactly. And for anybody who's not fiscally prepared and it's shocking how many of these guys, for as much as they make, really, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say, you know, live paycheck to paycheck, but they have such high overhead that uh, if they miss two or three paychecks in a row, it really begins to affect uh, the, the, their ability to, to function, uh, to keep uh, the payments going on all the things that, uh, that they have payments on. So um, that, that's where they begin to feel it. And you know, the interesting part, obviously, is going to be because we've had these 
record uh, record contracts being handed out lately. These these outrageous uh, contracts, and some of that I'm told is done because the the owners are basically counting on the lockout at this point. That it's it's they're it's almost like they're subtracting from what they're paying out. Okay, well we won't be paying this for at least six months next year. So <laughs> it's whatever it is. Um, it's it's minus six months of pay, and then the other part is is that they are you know there, there is a, a very large contingent of owners who are planning to uh, demand rollbacks so that um, all contracts uh, no, contracts that are signed going into the new collective bargaining unit they're going to say hey we want X amount this percentage we want this back and uh, if they're going to be really strategic about it what they're going to do is is they're going to set uh, a point where they say all contracts over 13 million, we want 25% back. And all contracts below 13 million, we want 8% back. And so that you're going to have a majority uh, who are going to say 8%, okay, I'll live with that to start getting paid again. And meanwhile, they get a huge chunk of money back from the top guys who are basically going to be outvoted. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Here's the problem for the players, and we saw this the last time around in 1998-99. David Stern has 30 owners that he needs to keep on the same page, and they're billionaires. Billy Hunter has 300-plus players he's got to keep on the same page, and you've got different divisions of wealth. You've got the elite max guys, LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Kobe. Then you've got the the middle-of-the-road players, and you've got the minimum players. And what happens is when you start missing games, the players' union starts to fracture because the elite guys can sit out a year. But the other guys start going, hey, look— I need my paycheck, and then that's where it breaks down for the players. So you've got millionaires competing against billionaires. That's why I always say, you know, even if the owners say we're going to sit out a year, I think at the end of the day the players are going to end up caving. Yes, no, no question about it. And, and, and you know, the last time the owners basically, you know, a lot of people were were saying that the players were being greedy. The owners never put an offer on the table for uh, for for nearly six months. And because they were just, they were going to push the owner, the players to a point, to a breaking point where they would basically be begging to come back and play. And the owners got everything they wanted. And I would expect that you're going to see the exact same tactic. And look, people can, can talk about the players being greedy or whatever, but the bottom line is there are guys, uh, especially those middle of the road guys where, um, you know, somebody gave me the example of Bryant Stiff who played for the Denver Nuggets. Uh, during the last lockout, he lost five million dollars. Um, he was supposed to get he got paid basically eight million dollars for that year. That was the biggest earning year of his career. He's coaching high school basketball now, and his life would be different with five million dollars more, as as it would for a lot of people. And that's you know people are going to focus on the on the LeBrons and the Dwayne Wades and the Kobe Bryant's. Um, those guys have put away enough, as you said, that they are comfortable, but there are guys that, you know, and it may sound like 8 million for, you know, for one year, that's a lot of money, but that has got to last guys for uh, a lifetime. And when you take out 8 million out of uh, a lifetime savings, uh, it it puts a significant change in, in their, uh, in their life and their lifestyle. And that's what a lot of guys are facing when you're talking about a lockout. There's a, there's a huge group of players out there 
who are basically, they may be losing the biggest earning year of their careers, and that's a career that, if they're lucky, lasts, lasts seven or eight years. Uh, and then they got to go out and they got to find a whole new um, line of work uh, to be able to support themselves. The average American, you know, get, get, just doesn't, I don't know that they can truly identify with the pressure that is on these players, but it's, it's, uh, it is very real in spite of the big numbers. No, I think you're right. And if I'm Billy Hunter, I point at two things. Number one, the record amounts that are being spent on NBA free agency this summer. And I'm not talking about the elite guys. I'm talking about the Amir Johnsons, the Darko Millisics, the Drew Goodens yep. of the world. And then the other thing is the Golden State Warriors were sold this week $450 million, record purchase price for an NBA team. Yep. So yep. if I'm Billy Hunter, I say, look, if this is such a broken model, yep. why are these two things happening? Why are owners paying players so much money? And why are people paying $450 million, a record amount for an NBA team. It can't be that broken. Yep. And, no, and, and that's the case that they're making, that, that when uh, – look, it, it, David is, is talking quite honestly out of two sides of his mouth. He's, first of all, they, they, they are initially projected that there was going to be a shortfall of between 25 to 5%, that, they, that they were gonna, uh, their, their projected earnings were going to be in, in, the, in the red by 25 to 5% ended up having a 1% growth in, in what is a very challenging economic year. And so for them to cry poor just doesn't make sense under those terms. The other thing that, that Billy Hunter pushes is, yeah, when you talk about expenses and, and all that, um, you're, you're not taking into account the appreciation of the franchises. And the $450 million sale is an indication that, uh, that, that, that the value of these franchises continues to go up. Now, on the flip side, what uh, the, the owners are saying is, look, the price of business has gone up. It, it costs more. We've got private, we've got charter uh, planes, we've got higher technology, we've got, uh, you know, the, the price of being competitive has increased, and that's why even though we are making more, we're having to spend a lot more. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't, mu- it doesn't matter which argument is there. It's a matter of who has the, the greater resolve to, to wait it out. And the owners, unfortunately for the players, are always going to have that advantage because most of them have a business uh, or businesses independent of what they make through basketball. And, and the majority of the players simply don't. Well, I think we're on the same page. We both believe there's going to be a work stoppage. I said on Twitter this week that uh, I think it'll go at least until January of 2012. I'm joined by Rick Buecher. He's ESPN's NBA insider. Great follow on Twitter, at Rick Buecher. Rick, let's talk about the story that dominated the sports world for weeks and really for the last few years, LeBron James. He signs in Miami. Obviously, lots of fallout in Cleveland. Let's first start with... I think LeBron really damaged his brand the way he handled this. I don't have a problem with LeBron switching teams. It's his right. He's a free agent. He earned the right to switch teams. The way this was handled, the decision on your network, and the way he went about this, I thought, really tarnished his brand. What do you think? Yeah, There's no no question about it. The way he handled it, uh, less so leaving leaving his team and, and how he left it. Um, you know, the, the loyalty thing, 
all of that went out the window. Uh, and it might have been hard to, it was going to be hard to preserve anyway. And uh, look, um, I mean, how he, how he did it certainly, certainly damaged him in a lot of ways. I mean, to the point where people are booing him when he goes to Carmelo Anthony's wedding or when he was at the ESPYs. I've heard, you know, just hisses and cat calls. But quite honestly, he was doing, his, doing damage to his brand by leaving Cleveland and going to Miami because uh, he's going to a team that already has a guy who would want a ring. And he was going where the guy there was recruiting stars to come play with him. Uh, that's what LeBron should have been trying to do in Cleveland if he wanted to, to, to preserve that brand. Because you, if you look at the imagery around all of his commercials, uh, it's, it's what? The hometown hero. Uh, the the closeness with his high school buddies, uh, all of that goes because he's basically, you know, it, it's not he deserted his hometown. Uh, he he could not have uh, treated them worse. And so now, what what do you? I mean, I, quite honestly, if you're an advertiser, what do you use as LeBron's calling card? He hasn't won any rings. He's no longer that guy who's sticking it out in his hometown that, that while everybody, you know, bags on Cleveland, this is the kid who is going to stick there and, and make it work and is taking them the heights that no one else could take them. Uh, you know, that, that was all part of the greatness of, of LeBron. Now all of that's gone. And quite honestly, even if they win in Miami, um, it's, it's clear who the alpha dog is there. It's clear who the leader is there simply by the guy who went and recruited other guys. And, 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 you know, people can say, Hey, he just wants to win rings. He wants to play with his friends all well and good. But, uh, we just heard Chris Paul talking about the same thing. You know, there's, there's, uh, innuendo that he wants to leave new Orleans, but he wants to go to New York and form his own big three. And he's not looking at it. I mean, he's the guy who is, uh, who is driving the car on that. And yes, Amari is already there. But Chris Paul is the one who's saying, I am going to form my own big three in New York uh, with uh, Carmelo and with Amare. He's the one who's promoting the idea. He's the one who's driving the boat. If LeBron had wanted to do that, he would have had to be the guy coming out front and saying, I'm going to Miami. I'm going to join with Dwayne Wade. I'm going to get Chris Bosh to come with us. And then he could have retained that driver's seat image. But as it went down and the way he approached it, uh, he does not and he cannot. And that changes the way we view him dramatically. And it doesn't change the way I view him because I always looked at him as sort of being a number two as opposed to a number one, uh, a passive-aggressive type leader in, in, in Cleveland. But uh, without question, now the rest of the world knows it and sees it, and that's going to change how everybody handles him, including advertisers. We've got just a few minutes left. You know, Dan Gilbert swore that he would not do a sign-in trade with LeBron. Uh, right. Toronto said they weren't going to do a sign-in trade with Chris Bosh. Phoenix, same thing with Amari Stoudemire. They all ended up doing sign-in trades. They got trade exceptions. Can you explain yep. to our audience the value of the trade exception for those teams who have to pick up the pieces and move on without their superstar? Well, the value of the trade exception, it's basically, it's, uh, it, it's, it means that you can take on a contract and you can give back whatever the size of your trade exception is 
to the team trading trading that player to you, uh, it, it's um, it's like a it's like a hall pass, and and it wouldn't matter if we weren't under such uh, if teams weren't under such fiscal duress as far as the cap is concerned. Basically, teams that are over the luxury tax, what they can do is is they can trade a player to one of these teams that's over the cap and get uh, and 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 under the rules normally the salaries have to match up. You have to take back as much money as you're sending out. Well, with a trade exception, that's not the case. You can acquire a player basically for nothing. You send that trade exception, and the attraction to the other team is we can now that, – that basically saves us money. If you're, Say you have a $10 million player, and you're $10 million over the luxury tax. Well, that's actually a $20 million player. Uh, that's what it's going to cost you. Now, you can send that $10 million player to somebody else for the trade exception, and now you're not just trading away a $10 million player. You're saving $20 million. And with certain teams, that is very valuable. So this gives them the chance to use that. And not very many teams have eight-figure trade exceptions. That's why you saw these trade exceptions with these really big contracts because they can, they, they can utilize those, and they can go out and get a significant player. Rick, it's always great to catch up with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Rick Buecher, ESPN's NBA insider. Follow him on Twitter, at R-I-C-B-U-C-H-E-R, at Rick Buecher. Rick, have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. You got it, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, We'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. We are back with our final segment on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Well, the tax level for the 2010-2011 NBA season has been set at $70.3 million. That's up from $69.9 million last season. The new $58.04 million salary cap is in effect as of July 8th. So that went into effect roughly a week ago. Now, when the NBA announced next season's salary cap, 11 teams got official luxury tax bills. Griggs, these are not bills that you want to get. The Lakers had the highest luxury tax bill, so they won the championship this year. But Jerry Buss is going to be writing a luxury tax check bill for $21.4 million. Mark Cuban 
and the Mavericks, they're going to pay $17.5 million in luxury tax. Dan Gilbert, who just lost LeBron James, has to write a check for $15.4 million. That one's got to hurt the most. The Boston Celtics will pay $14.9 million in luxury tax, and Orlando is going to pay $11 million in luxury tax. Now, there were 19 non-tax teams. They get a rebate of $3.7 million. So the moral of the story is, if you're going to go over the salary cap and you're going to pay luxury tax, you better make a lot of money. You better play a lot of home playoff games. You better win a championship. If you don't, it is really a horrible bill to get from the Grim Reaper, in this case, uh, David Stern. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, can you imagine going to the mail and getting a bill for fifteen point five million? I mean, you and me, we get upset if our electric bill goes up ten bucks. You know, these guys are getting these bills fifteen five million, unbelievable. Well, and for Dan Gilbert, who just lost the face of his franchise, probably saw his franchise value decrease by seventy five to a hundred million dollars. To get a, a bill for fifteen point four million dollars, that is a kick in the groin. All right, lots of thank yous on this week's show. Our guest, Rick Buecher, ESPN's NBA insider. Maury Brown from thebizofbaseball.com. Our show staff, Brian Griggs, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon and New School Media Coaching. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page. Follow me on Twitter. I am at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.